Welcome to Awakening Divine Wildness, hosted by inspirational speaker and best-selling author, Mal Duane. Mal invites you to embrace your divine wildness with powerful conversations with visionary women. Listen in and learn how to move from pain and heartache to forgiveness and freedom so you can live the life you deserve. goodness gracious. I am so excited today because I have one of my sisters on with me. And it's such an honor to be able to get this lady on Awakening Divine Wildness. She's been on a big media blitz. So bless her heart for fitting us in. Today's guest is Kelly Kithley. And she's a sought after international woman's mental health expert, author of the best-selling book, right here in my hands, myself, an autobiography of survival. And she has appeared in over 100 publications, podcasts, live news, and radio, including WGN and NBC. She's been in the Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, Self Magazine, Shape Magazine, and as a columnist for Fitness Magazine and Recovery Connection as well as Thrive Global. But Kelly recently has made a tour of national media outlets, such as Megyn Kelly Today, Access Live, Dr. Oz, and she also has a fabulous TEDx speech. So Kelly, welcome so much, girl, for being on today. Oh, thank you. You bring me to tears. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a journey. Well, I identify with so much of this because you are so open and so raw about your struggles with addiction, with alcoholism, and sadly with sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And all of this that happened to you inspired you to become a licensed clinical social worker and to really dig deep into mental illness. And it's such a hot topic now. I mean, what's happening in the news and what we're seeing. So I commend you for your dedication and the work that you're doing. I'd love to get into your journey a little bit. Uh, you had an unusual childhood with Alan Fluff, I must admit. So why don't you start us kind of at that spot of the journey and take us through. Sure, that's a great place to start, um, above my parents' bar in Chicago. And I joke and say that was really my first clinical experience and my my training, you know, just being around so many different personality types and um, so many types of people and addiction for sure. Um, but I'm the oldest of five and um, mental health and addiction run strong in my family of origin and in our genes. Um, but it was something that was never talked about and always swept underneath the rug if it did slip a little bit. And so um, taking a huge leap in the other direction and really talking about the uncomfortable things and eliminating the shame and changing the conversation has been so important for me in my own growth, but also as an advocate and as a licensed clinical social worker as well. Now, Al was a little bit of a different character. You, you don't really have too much of a relationship with him today. It was sort of unhealed. I don't. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. I, I did see him. Um, my youngest sister got married in um, November of last year and I officiated the wedding and he was there. And, you know, um, I have come to a place of healing and acceptance. Um, although when I do see him, it stirs some of that stuff up, no matter how far along we have come in our healing process. Um, but I thought it was very um very Al to offer me a drink at the wedding, having known I haven't had one in over five and a half years. So um, it just kind of gave me a laugh and thought, mm, yeah, pretty typical. <laughs> As a young woman, you really sought validation from him. It was so important to you. Why do you think that young girls, they do that with their dads, that they need to have that that approval and recognition? Well, I think it's such a natural connection um, that, you know, younger girls have a tendency to attach to their fathers. I think it's just, a, it's something that I can't quite explain, but just a very natural um, relationship that can oftentimes develop where we have a tendency to attach with our mothers a little later in life. Um, you know, it's like that infancy stage and that toddler stage, we attach with moms, then we kind of separate a little bit, attach more to dads, and then kind of, at least in my experience, and I know um, typically speaking. Um, but I did, I wanted his attention and I wanted validation and I wanted to be recognized and seen. Um, and I you know, with many years of trying to seek his approval, I recognized no matter how big it was, um, you know, whether it was an accomplishment, an achievement, a experience that I had, it, those things still never got his attention. Um, so it really didn't matter. He was kind of an odd cat, wouldn't you say? He was a little different guy. I mean, reading that he would be laying around the house and open robe and whatnot, I mean, yeah. didn't create any angst for you as a young girl? You know, it was so my norm that it really didn't create, it started to create that, you know, when I was 16 and my girlfriend came over and it was like, oh, don't mind him. Um, but, it, you know, he is so well liked by everybody um, and really is a character, um, but has such a narcissistic personality um, that, you know, he really does only think of himself. And so if he feels like laying on the couch naked you know, in a robe um, on a Saturday afternoon, well, he's allowed to do that, regardless of how it may make other people feel. And his response when I have, you know, called him out on that when I was in high school was, well, if they don't like it, just don't have them come over. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> because at a very early age, you, I don't even think you were 13, you were like 12, dressing up for older boys. Um, you had this burning desire to, um, you know, meet older boys, hang out with them. And so I was wondering if that was maybe fueled by your relationship with him or just you were just sort of ahead of the game. Um, I'd say 90% fueled by my relationship with him. But, um, you know, I, as I describe in the book, I was described by other people as big for my britches. And I did always feel older than my chronological age. And, you know, I think that was a result of hanging around with adults as a young child um, in the bar industry, as well as just feeling like I was born into the world as an old soul. 
How old were you when you had your first blackout? Because when I read this part, it was so much like my own journey. And, and you were very young when you had your first blackout. Yeah, I was 12. I mean, I had my first blackout the first time I drank. So um, that was pretty scary. But I also thought that that's what happened when you drank. So I replicated that almost every time I drank. I thought that's how you were supposed to drink. Uh, I was a teenager and alcohol just got its hooks into me, boy. It made me, I was very tall, very thin, taller than everybody else, um, was subject to a lot of criticism and bullying. So that alcohol led me to believe that I fit in perfectly. It gave me such courage and wow, it just made me feel so good Mm -hmm. up until my mid twenties. And then it really, it started to change. Sadly, you went through quite a journey with your alcohol, um, and it took you to some pretty dark places. Um, why don't you share with us, you know, what happened as you were coming home one night? Uh, from uh, you were leaving where you had been working, and uh, me. Was, yeah, attacked. I'm sorry, I lost you. Oh, um, oh, my um, computer froze. Oh, that's <laughs> quite all right. We, we have those things happen. So uh, why don't you share with us what happened to you one evening when you were coming home from work, from the sure. bar that you were working at, and mm-hmm. what happened? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the bar industry is in my blood. Um, my grandfather owned a bar. My father owned a bar. My parents were met at a restaurant. Um, my husband and I met at my parents' bar. Um, a lot of good things came out of the bar, but, um, I was working at a different bar, um, than the ones that my parents owned, um, because it had an outdoor patio and it was really busy during the summer. And that's how I was able to pay for my education. Um, i Today, I still feel so proud of that, that I was able to pay for my undergraduate and graduate degrees in cash. Um, and that was from working at a bar. And one night in May, about um, 18 years ago, I was walking home. Um, and it was 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Um, and I was just a few blocks from where I lived. Um, and I w- had not been drinking. Um, and I say that because that's part of... Um, the, the shame involved in, in my experience after the attack had happened, but, um, I had turned down the corner and I was a victim of a random act of sexual violence and somebody threw me to the ground and attacked me and sexually violated me. Um, but I was lucky enough to be able to break free, um, because I had taken a self-defense class in college. And, um, as soon as I broke free, ran to the nearest public place and asked them to call the police. Um, and when the police arrived, it was kind of what you hear about, you know, that first of all, it was in public. So people were staring and just didn't know what to do and could see that I was really shaken up, but nobody really knew what happened. Um, and then when the police arrived, they asked if I had been drinking. Um, and when I asked if I could be taken to the hospital, they told me I, that they weren't a taxi cab um, driver. And um, at that time, the bartender who who was working at the place that I had ran into had given me a glass of water and a cigarette because I was so shaken up and I was trying to calm down and um the police officer just kept ridiculing me for my behavior and then ultimately decided to drive me um to the hospital so you know it was appalling the 
when you describe their reaction to the trauma that you had just gone through and you did go to the hospital, they did finally get a, a rape advocate for you, yeah. uh, a woman, so that at least you had somebody with you going through that exam and whatnot. Um, do you think things have improved for women when today when they go in? Uh, I don't know how many of, of your patients have maybe gone through something similar, but do, do you think the, the environment has improved somewhat to support women to step forward when this happens? I do. I think we've come a long way. I think we still have a long way to go, but because of my corrective experience at the hospital and an advocate coming and meeting me who just came into the emergency room, um, I had no idea how she got there. Um, but you know, it was protocol, um, that the hospital in a situation like this would call rape victim advocates and somebody would come over right away and meet the victim. Um, and so I have given back to that agency and, um, have spoken at different events and helped them raise money so that they can go to the police station and do trainings for police officers. Um, so that there is a different kind of sensitivity and to be able to train doctors and nurses on how to respond. Um, so a lot of these first responders who really set the stage for how a woman or man or anybody who's been assaulted starts that process of healing. Um, so I do think that, that there has been a lot of change made. Um, but I think the only way for that to happen is that, we continue to talk about it. We continue to break the silence. We continue to direct people in a way that they know how they can get help if it does happen, and also with prevention. Well, this has been the year for breaking the silence, to say the least. And I, I love seeing that Me Too movement. It just um, is so inspirational that these women are finally standing up and telling their story so that they can get on that path of healing. Mm -hmm. uh, from reading your book, you suffered greatly from that experience and you lived with a, an element of fear and trauma that went on for some time. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you help women today? What, would you, what do you recommend to somebody that this happens to? How do they start that path of healing and forgiving themselves in many cases because you blame yourself that it happens and being able to let go of the experience so it doesn't control your life. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that, that shame word is so triggering and, and people, everybody can relate to that because no matter what your experience, everybody has experienced what and it's horrible. Um, and so what I, typically advise is that somebody finds at least one person they can trust to start to let that that experience open up into a healing process rather than one that is so crippling and so whether that is initially starting with you know a trusted biological sister or a really um, strong relationship with a girlfriend you know that that can feel supportive initially, but that those 
individuals don't have the capacity to help that person really work through the trauma, which is then when you or I would come in, you know, and really help guide somebody in terms of a therapeutic relationship. Um, and it takes years to heal from something like that, you know, and so many people want a quick fix. Um, and there can be a quicker fix with medication or learning some tools. Um, I remember when I went into the, um, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, I wanted like a quick fix. Give me eight sessions. Tell me how to get on and move on from this and let me get on my way. Um, but I couldn't even get through some of the symptoms of the anxiety for the first six months to a year for me to begin that journey of healing. And I think we need to understand that women or men who's ever assaulted can experience tremendous post-traumatic stress, huge. Mm -hmm. And um, that, you know, we need to be looking for that in somebody and watching them and supporting them because um, if undetected and not treated, then it can lead to even probably a deeper mental illness you know, going forward on their path. Or, you know, self-medicating with substances. I mean, that was something that was huge for me. I mean, we talked about my drinking, you know, and when it started, but really traumatic experiences throughout my life is when my drinking would get worse because it was a way for me to numb out. It was a way to help me sleep. It was really something that, you know, I felt like I didn't have any other choice, but, you know, a substance that would numb me and, and help me not feel and would shut off the um, reoccurring nightmare of what had happened to me that night. Awful. Um, mental illness, there, there's so much of it now in the news. And how can we, as, as family members, as friends, what should we be doing to look at the ones that we care about and look for warning signs, look for signals. What, what recommendations do you have? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of, you know, the two famous people that passed last week from suicide. And you say, wow, what, didn't anybody know what was going on? So what can we do to prevent this? Well, there's two types of people, right? It, it's, um, the people who on the outside look like everything's okay. They're, they're high achieving, they're perfectionistic. They always seem to be in a good mood. And so, you know, one would assume that somebody like that is okay. Um, and that certainly was me for a long time. You know, people had no idea what had happened to me, um, because I put on a mask. Um, so there's like that camp. And then there's the camp of people who, you know, look severely depressed or are isolating or, you know, um, aren't going to work. And so those types of people may be easier to identify as somebody who might be going through a hard time. So the, the idea is to start with asking somebody how they are doing and genuinely having a desire to know um, because a lot of times people get frustrated with the, the second type of behavior that I described. Um, and so our response is to just dismiss and, you know, oh, they'll never get over it or, you know, they're just always depressed or in a bad mood and um, really being able to just 
be there spending time with somebody to let them know that you care. We are not that powerful to have all the answers, but to be able to have an empathic approach and to be able to sit with somebody um, is invaluable. And then there's, you know, the other camp that I talked about of people who just, it seems like everything is okay. Um, but certainly there can be things that we can pick up on sometimes even recognizing like, gosh, you seem to always be in a good mood. Like, what is it that you do? Or do you ever have bad days? Or, you know, um, I think being curious, um, can oftentimes lead to a deeper discussion with somebody. Um, your battle with alcohol went on right up until after your fourth child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sanity. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was, I like to say it didn't affect my daily life, but I know that that's not true. It didn't affect my daily life in the sense that I couldn't accomplish, um, you know, taking care of my kids or getting to work or paying my bills. And I think that's what kept me drinking for so long was that I felt so much emotional pain and remorse and shame and regret the day after I drank. But when I would have those experiences, I would say, okay, I'm not going to drink for two weeks then. Then I'll get it out of my system. And then I'll pick up again, you know, thinking like, oh, I'm fine. I'm in such a better place. You know, how the alcohol is not going to affect me the way that it did the last time. Um, And then, you know, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Um, I mean, certainly the questions that come with, so what was, you know, I had a patient who had read the book who said, so were you drinking in between sessions? You know, I think that goes back to the idea of what an alcoholic looks like, you know, that I was getting up in the morning and drinking on my way to work or, you know, had a bottle in my drawer and would drink in between sessions. Um, and certainly was an alcoholic like that, um, but that was not me. And so I didn't really know anybody in my life who had drank the way that I did, who had also decided to stop drinking. So um, my mom is over 20 years sober, but um, she said she woke up one morning and she asked God to be her sponsor and she had never picked up a drink again. Um, and so I thought that that's what that was supposed to look like. And I had tried to do that so many times and it didn't work for me. Um, so ultimately I needed to find something that worked. And thank God my girlfriend who I had grown up with um, for 20 years, I mean, we were drinking together at age 13, um, had decided to stop drinking a couple months before I did when I was had become a daily drinker at that point, you know, a bottle of wine at night when I got home from work and then putting my kids bed. Um, she drank the way that I did and she decided to stop drinking. So for me, that was a great model <laughs> and you it worked. Were, you were a high performing drinker. I was too. Yeah. I mean, when I said to my mom, I'm, I've got to get into recovery. Or I'm going to die. She's like, Oh, you're not that bad. You know, you're not oh. bad. I said, Oh yeah. yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I eat it well. I eat it well. Yeah. Well, that statement, right? You're not that bad or you're not as bad as. Um, And if we stay in that comparison track, we will continue to drink or use or whatever our drug of choice is, you know, whether it's food or shopping, it's all the same to me. It's just a different vice. Um, 
but if we know that that we've hit our emotional or spiritual rock bottom that's all the difference your children made some comments to you about your drinking if i remember correctly oh yeah mm -hmm. and that didn't bother you too much that didn't inspire you enough to really put it down until was it bk your friend yeah yeah <laughs> that um had gotten uh, on the path ahead of you and then said come on Mm -hmm. I'll walk with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, when when we start, when I started recognizing my children who were really young when I got sober, they were seven, five, three, and one. Um, when they started noticing and making comments, it, it did become more alarming to me. Um, you know, because kids don't lie. Everybody else could like turn the other way and say that they didn't notice, but when my kids noticed, ugh, that was hard. Well, you know, um, you're so open about what you've gone through. I mean, the descriptions in here, the night you were attacked, I cringed when I read it. Um, there was another episode when you were just a young girl over at a friend's house, the handyman. Mm -hmm. um, so you're just so open about all of this. Uh, and you also have a really powerful TED Talk about this whole dynamic that we're talking about today. Give the listeners your website address so that they can go out, get in touch sure. with you, and also watch the TED Talk. Sure. Um, so my website is www.kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, kitley, K-I-T-L-E-Y, dot com. Um, and if anybody forgets that, you can Google my name and there's a lot of information that comes up and can take you to the TED Talk or to purchase the book on Amazon or um, really to a lot of different <laughs> avenues of articles I've contributed to. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. Some of it's my expert opinion about certain things and some of it's my own life experience. So um, probably more than anybody wants to know, but hopefully somebody can find something that they can relate to in, in what I've shared. Well, I related to it deeply. And I think that your journey is just a perfect fit for awakening divine wildness, how we can go through the crap and come out with a purpose and to serve others so that they don't end up with the same wounds that we end up with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you mentioned that in, in your TED Talk, or I think it was there that, you know, you're, you, you tell your story to help other women to prevent the wounds that you've had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful work, girl. Thank Wonderful. you so much. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's been great to have you today. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know how busy you are, and I really appreciate it. Hmm. So nice to meet you live. <laughs> yes. yes. Bless you. <laughs> Thank Wonderful. you for having Thank me. You. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening to Awakening Divine Wildness. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend and leave some stars in a favorable review at iTunes. And be sure to visit MalduaneCoach.com for your free Heal Your Heart, Reclaim Your Worth six-week video course.